Hi, welcome to the Indie Wine Podcast. My name is Matt Wood, and this is episode 30. Today, our episode is with Tyler Stacy of Commune Regional Wines. Tyler runs Commune with his wife, Emily, and together they're making wines from places that they love. These are well-made, bright, and textured wines from California that go great with food and family. We had our conversation at the Harmeyer slash Harbor Winery in West Sacramento, where Commune is based. I hope you enjoy. Here we go. It certainly provided the addition of fruit, Mm. which I was hoping for. Yeah. But still a very, very, I'm very happy with the result that's... Really delicious and smells kind of, smells and tastes distinctly of Fijoa. Mm-hmm. If you've ever had like a pineapple guava. Yeah. Which is like. My grandpa used to have one of those trees. I would, so, I would it's so great. eat them all the time. And I'd, I'd always pick like shopping bag full of them, you know, oh to God, take dude. home. It's probably my favorite fruit. And I first discovered them in New Zealand while oh. I was there working, okay. working harvest in Central Hawks Bay. And it was like, I didn't even know a fruit could taste like that. Yeah. And then we were tasting a bottle like just like a couple weeks ago, I think, with Adam Saki. And he was like, you know what it smells like? He's like, it smells like Fijoa. Yeah. I was like, whoa. I was like, dude, it does. It smells and tastes exactly like Fijoa. You know, I want to know how you got started in wine. What was your interests like and what kind of led you down the path? So I come mostly from restaurants. Um, I started working, I've worked almost exclusively in restaurants. Okay. Until not working in restaurants. (laughs) Uh, In what capacity? All of them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I got a job thanks to my uncle who knew a finance guy at a Mexican restaurant in Fresno, California. And... I was the busboy there. Okay. And then um, I got bumped to server. Okay. And then one day there was um, a couple who had come in who who were locals and, and regulars, and they, they owned a restaurant in town, a, a well-regarded one um, called Parma Ristorante. And they approached me at the end of their meal the the fun detail is that Elena, who owns the restaurant, is a massive fan of guacamole, okay. and so she would come in and just like Hoover a <laughs> bowl of guacamole. Um, and uh, they were like, "Hey, we saw you working. Like, if you are interested in like another job, like you should come talk to us." Okay. And I was, I think, eighteen at the time, seventeen oh, or eighteen okay. at the time. So yeah. I was like, "No one's ever done that before." So <laughs> all right, I'll go talk to you guys and. You know, several years later, they they were, you know, Joe and Elena were, were a second family to me. And mm-hmm. I would spend most of my Thanksgivings and Christmas while living in Fresno with them. And, you know, obviously with, with, with my own family as well. But I was more excited because it was usually, you know, a 45-pound turkey and every classic Italian holiday dish. Mm, okay. 30 people, like, it just was, like, such such a party. And so they just became really, really influential uh, in my life at that time. And it was, for me, was, you know, kind of as a kid with, with no real path or anything to do, they kind of showed me something I didn't know existed before. Okay. And really what that was, in hindsight, now I understand, was, like, 
the unbelievable passion and purpose that Italian culture abides by. Mm. And so, you know, it was also pretty cool that like I could, you know, finish my shift with like a glass of Chianti. Yeah. She always told me never tell anybody about that, but <laughs> that definitely happened. And it, as a young kid, that was the coolest thing that yeah, ever happened to sure. me. So I thought that was pretty amazing. And there just was something about like the 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 never ending option to learn something okay that was like unbelievably captivating to me you know like uh, all my formative years were all focused exclusively on music and it's a similar topic where it doesn't really matter how good you get or how skilled you are at a given instrument or whatever you're never going to like you don't like conquer it or master Mm -hmm. it like there's always something and you have to continue to you know evolve your your skill set and so there was something about like you know italy was a hell of a place to start because even today i'm more than a dozen years into my career and i still learn about italian varieties i've never even heard of right there's a lot regularly of yeah. regularly so you know it was a hell of a place to start and that just kind of i think set something in, in motion where I really, really enjoyed not only just the learning of it, but also the conversation that you get to have and being mm-hmm. able to be table side and have a communicative engagement with people who are like, here's kind of what we're looking for. What do you think? You know, and I don't know who the hell thought it was a good idea to ask me at 19 years old <laughs> if they should have Brunello or Barolo, but I had an answer for them, yeah. you know? And so there was something about that that just like really captivated me. And, you know, years and years later down the road, I think I was maybe finally 21 or 22. And I heard about, I heard the word sommelier for the first time. Mm. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that could be like a job. I didn't, I, that was not on my radar. So I kind of learned a little bit more about that. And then, you know, I, I, I want, I, you know, I, I explored it and I took over my first you know, wine program at 22, you know, okay. which certainly no, no one should have let me do, but, um, but I did it, you know, I've always been a bit of a, of a strong believer in, in, and fake it till you make it. So yeah. you just jump in on I it. Was, I was definitely faking it at the yeah. time. Um, but you know, it was exciting and it felt good and it was, it was really cool to be, you know, it's weird. You could just be like, yeah, I make the decisions now and then everyone will show up and let you taste any wine you want. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, you know, at 22 years old, you're like, yeah, I'll taste anytime, all the time, whenever you want. Like, and so it was just a really great experience to, to, to kind of have that opportunity to learn. And then I went through the, the, the quartermaster sommelier for, you know, certification. I don't even remember what year that was and kind of rode that train for a number of years. And that certainly has become, that very quickly became zero interest uh to me okay for a a whole number of reasons um i i kind of the universe was i think trying to teach me a long lesson which was you don't need to be working in restaurants and so i you know tried and i put my heart and soul into many different projects and they all met their demise Mm. at one point or another and it just did not seem like a path that was stable enough for what I wanted in life. And so, you know, in and out, and I think it was 2013 after a really difficult 
closure that mm-hmm. was, you know, the highest level I had worked at. You know, we, we, we were operating, you know, at a very high mission level standard. And this was before the Michelin Guide was involved in Sacramento at all. And we were really, really pressing them okay. to open up reviews in the city at the time. And they didn't have interest. They didn't think there was enough going on. And so, you know, just the restaurant didn't have the the, the ability to survive, you know, those, you know, Sacramento's ever enduring difficult years of, you know, excitement and then, you know, disappointment, which has gone on so many times, it seems like. But okay. Does it have a little bit of that kind of a wave? It, it seems like wave kind of I think anyone who's been here for a time, there's there's kind of always been like a lot of talk or a lot of hype about, okay. you know, it's going to be this next city. And then all the people that are like from here and they're like, no one cares. Like, no, it's not. We're not trying to do that. We just we just live here and we're just doing what we're doing. Stop comparing us to a bunch of other cities. That's mm-hmm. not really the point. But there's always been kind of this hype and like the food scene, this and that. And, you know, I think now it's finally coming around full circle where people are understanding like it's it's more about what like the community that exists here and the ability to have access to the greatest produce in the world. It's yeah. just like this it, there's no there's not very many places like here in that regard. So I think that like, you know, it just was there's always kind of been those cycles. And so we were operating at like a really high level and, you know, today's standard it was un- unbelievably affordable <laughs> compared to what you pay now, but you know, it was expensive and it was tasting menu and like no one was really, you know, it was that was a jump. That was a special occasion, I think, for for people. Where now it's, it seems a little bit more commonplace. But and so you know that kind of closed um, on a whim, you know, and, okay. and and that was like a phone call one night oh, that wow. was like, Not even. I'm giving you a heads up mm-hmm. because I just found out when you show up tomorrow, there will not be service, you know. So and that was like putting every ounce, you know. That was like. 14 hour days every day like grueling you know also the cellar was upstairs so there's that physical (laughs) component of having to truck cases up and down constantly and you know it just was a lot and so that was 20 uh i think maybe that was 2012 the end of 2012 um and so that just was kind of a lot emotionally to let Mm -hmm. go of that and i had um a friend of mine uh, Chris Pittenger, who, you know, he had started his own project. He had been a winemaker for, you know, several years, but he was a sommelier yeah. previously and and moved into the realm of winemaking. And so I was like, I just connected with him. I was like, what do you, how'd you do that? What did you do? And he's like, the first thing you have to do is take a pay cut. And I was like, I'm already broke. So it's <laughs> fine with me. Um, and so we talked a lot and he, he was really helpful. And so I went and worked, um, I, I, I went and did, a, a harvest in central Hawks Bay, New Zealand, which was, you know, about as far away as I could possibly manage, but yep. it was more timing. I was like, it's going to be spring and they're going to harvest and that'll be just be, you know, in two months time or whatever. So it kind of made sense. And so I went and did that. Um, and then came back and then subsequently worked harvest with Chris, um, that following year. And so I kind of just like really jumped and dove into that and mm-hmm. it was kind of the right time and place to be able to take that sort of risk where I didn't need a bunch of cash and I could be a bit of a, you know, 
vagrant, if if you will, and sleep yeah. in a trailer and in New Zealand, and you know, like <laughs> it just was it, it was it was possible. So I did that and 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 really loved it. You know, it, it, there's there's yeah. a lot about Harvest that mimics you know working on the floor in a restaurant where. It can be really fast paced, but it's really fun. It's actually really important how articulate you are. And like, there's a lot of similarities that really tracked for me. And it was a great opportunity to see, like really live how this, how you get what's in the bottle. Mm -hmm. And that was a pretty amazing experience. And so I did that for, for a couple, a handful of consecutive harvests. And then I decided that I needed to have a stable income. <laughs> so I got a job. I think it was, yeah, I don't remember, but I think working in, a, in another restaurant or man- managing a place or something. And uh, again, another failing business okay. meeting its ultimate demise. Uh, and I was apparently hired to try and save it, which was not a good idea. And I did that for a number of years and just, you know, wanted to ring, you know, pull, pull my hair out, yeah. you know, the classic overworked, underpaid general manager is mm-hmm. ne- never, never a good gig. So um, I had met a guy um, on a trip to Santa Barbara Wine Country several years prior, um, Jared Heber, and he started a company that was like kind of a newer wholesale company, and they had a lot of really cool kind of new California producers um down in 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 that neck of the woods like Graham Tatomer and um mm-hmm. you know the Ludi wines that Eric Rosbeck was doing and um it was really kind of exciting and he yeah. was also selling Ryan Sturm stuff and so it was like you know I was like these are all extremely exciting new producers in California yeah, and so kind of you know through a, a random chance um I reconnected with him and was like what are you what, like what what's what's up with what you're doing right now you know I was buying some wine from him at the time and I was like, do you, do you want like a rep? And he was like, sure. We, we don't have anybody up there. Like you'd have to just do it and, you know, build it yourself. There's no, there's no, you're not walking into any money. And I was like, whatever, that's fine. Anything other than what I'm doing right now. And, uh, and, and that was more or less that. And so yeah. I got into wholesale, which I think was in hindsight, probably the best thing that could have happened for me because it was the piece that I didn't really have exposure to. Okay. Yeah. In the, in, you know, in the marketplace of, of wine, there's, you know, people who grow it, there's people who make it, there's people who sell it and there's people who drink it, you know? And so that was kind of the layer that I hadn't really experienced yet. And, you know, seven years later now, you know, I manage Northern California for Grand Cru selections. You know, they've, a merger uh, recently and um, I feel like it's the one thing I know better than anything is how to sell wine okay and and less just the selling of wine but more the opportunity to build a network of people that 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 you can engage with in in this world and I remember thinking about wanting to start making wine and 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 realizing that i've heard like so many people that's like or you know like some small mom and pop thing yeah. and it's like the selling of the wine they just they don't know how to do it they can't do it yeah they've got three or four vintages in the warehouse and it just you know and so after several years working in wholesale i was like 
I think I feel cool that I can sell the wines. I think I can, I think I feel confident about that. So now I just need to figure out how to do it. Uh-huh. And so that was the next challenge. Yeah. So, so your first vintage was 2020. Is that right? Of, of commune? It was, um, our first crush was 2020. Um, we released two wines um, under another brand, which again is my typical um, do it first and figure it out later uh, methodology. Okay. <laughs> and so we just started doing, and, and you know, 2020 was a hell of a vintage to start making wine. It was obviously full-blown COVID. All the restaurants were closed. I had literally nothing to do. You know, there wasn't much that we could do. Everyone had to stay home. And obviously, right. like, we were working much closer with retailers because everyone was at home drinking and rather than being in restaurants. And so just the day-to-day was completely different. And we had a lot of free time. And so I, I you know, talked to my wife, Emily, and I was like, this is something I've wanted to start doing almost 10 years ago. You know, like, what better time than now? And she was like, do it. So I yeah. was like, okay. I was like, she was like, what are you, what do you want to make? I was like, I don't know. I have no <laughs> idea. And so I just set some really loose parameters on what I needed okay. to, to do it, which really was just whatever fruit, you know, whatever variety I can seem to get that seems interesting enough. Yeah. And if it's from a place that I want to express, then then I'll just do it. And if it's cheap, that was that was, that was <laughs> the other one. Uh, and so we started in 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 Solano County in in Green Valley, which is my hometown. I was born and raised in Fairfield, and spent all my adolescence there. And you know, caused all sorts of mischief on those back roads, and <laughs> you know, running in and around those vineyards. You know, as a kid, and I, I that was completely outside of my realm of awareness as a kid. Uh, I had, I wasn't connected to wine. I didn't, we didn't have, you know, my my first wine was a box of uh, Franzia yeah. blush, you know, the day before my first communion. That was the only thing I'd ever had before. So it wasn't really anything that was in my purview. And so being able to be like, oh, wow, like full circle, those vines are still there. They were there when I was a kid on this road. And now I can ferment that fruit and make a wine out of it it was like a really really wonderful um moment to to explore and so we started there and and then figured out everything after that (laughs) what was it that initially kind of drew you back to solano i mean it wasn't really on purpose to be honest i i i didn't have any real familiarity with 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 the wines that that were being made there i mean you know, I knew Susun Valley was coined the Petite Syrah capital of the world or whatever they call it. And I have never really been a fan of Petite Syrah. It's never been, it's always typically produced like as a really big wine and, and yeah. that's not really my taste. So I didn't really have much familiarity. You know, I'd maybe had like, you know, a couple bottles that, you know, Chris Brockway had produced from that area. You know, Pax has made some things there as well. So, um, it wasn't, I didn't really know. And it just was like, what is available? And so I just was like searching classified ads, you know, on wine business and seeing what popped up. And I saw an ad for, you know, 
French Columbard and Valdegui, and they had some of those, you know, more obscure things. And I just, you know, started exploring a little bit and, yeah. and it kind of led me down that path. And then um, on, on a whim uh, through a friend of mine, uh, Lisa Howard, who owns Tillinus, she like hit me up on Instagram about a random thing. And she was like, oh, is this the Carignan that you're trying to get this year? And I was like, no, but what is that? Like it was big, gnarly, you know, head train. And I was okay. like, what is that? And she's like, I'll find out. Just like, it's called Parenti Vineyard. And I was like, okay, cool. Like I want to get some of that for sure. So um, she helped get me in touch and 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 we made that and French Columbard from the neighboring vineyard in 2020. Mm-hmm. And so- it was not intentional, okay. But it kind of started a wheel turning, you know, creatively in my brain. It was like maybe, maybe there's actually something interesting about this place. And then I started thinking more about it, and I was like, actually, like I don't even care if it's that interesting. Like I, I want to be able to express this place that is has been so important to me in my life, you know. And yeah. so it, it, it feel there's a lot of you know, full circle healing type things of, you know, being back in your hometown, you know, and having for so many years felt like, ah, my stupid hometown, like <laughs> that place is so stupid, you know, there's <laughs> nothing there and like, blah. And then being like, well, maybe there are some redeeming qualities, you know, yeah. and getting and like having to go back there all the time, you know, to like check on vineyards and, you know, sample and, and, and be, be in the vines is like, it's a really cool experience. And and now I'm dead set on continuing, you know, and we, over the past few years, we've kind of, you know, grown what we want to do there. And, and I think with this harvest, I think we kind of have a good idea of like what I think best represents not only the history, but the future of, of, of Solano County. Mm-hmm. And, and it feels really cool to be able to participate in that. Yeah, I feel like it's still... A little unexplored for the types of wines that you're making. It's yeah, I would agree. I think it's um, but it's an know, intriguing yeah a- area, Green and- Valley in particular, and I think because it's so small, you know, it's yeah. it's it's four miles long and one mile wide. It's a very very small area, and it's pretty unexplored. There's only a handful of wineries, and there's only so much vineyard land, and most people who are getting that fruit are as far as I know, they're putting it into other things. And so you can't just go be like, cool, that's, what does Green Valley Carignan taste like? That's not like an example you can just go pull off the shelf everywhere. You know, mm-hmm. it's such a small niche area. And so, you know, it's not the entirety of Solano County. So it to me is like a great place to start. And, you know, getting people to understand, it's like, no, literally on the other side of the, like, if you were strong enough, you could hit Coombsville with a rock, you know, <laughs> standing in Green Valley. It's it's that close. So it's, you know, it's an interesting place. And there's a lot of, I don't want to say a lot of, there's a lot of compared to how large the place is, but um, there's a lot of old vines there that are, you know, head trained and they're dry farmed. And they're, you know, a lot of them are kind of this typical, you know, mixed blacks type situation with Carignan and Baldegui and Petit Syrah and, um, you know, pe- people were, producers were using this typical set, you know, for like the hardy burgundy era of wines. Yeah. And that to me is like such a special piece of history. And 
a lot of those vines are still there. Mm -hmm. And why not, you know, try to capture what's happening now and, you know, being able to utilize information we have now and, you know, be able to express a place in, in a new, in a new way. And so it's a really cool kind of link of, of history. And that's, that's a, a big part of, it's a large component of, of, of how we try to think about the wines that we want to make, mm -hmm. because really our focus is about trying to objectively identify what best represents a region. Um, you know, this is something that, that that is well understood throughout European wine growing countries. It's much easier if you've had hundreds and hundreds of years to identify a grape variety sure. and then legally mandate that just one grape variety is all we're going to grow or two or three or whatever, you know. It's much easier to have that narrow focus. Um, you know, it's still the Wild West out here and you can do anything. You know, as yeah. we were discussing, you can have a Sirtico in Lodi and you can have Vermentino in El Dorado. You can, you can do anything. There's not really that many rules in that regard. Um, so I think from my perspective, having come up through the world of, of sommeliers, that type of awareness about how do you understand a place, that is the thing that I want to capture. And when we first started, you know, crushing on our, on our own a couple of years ago, I, I realized very, very quickly that I didn't have a damn clue what any of these places tasted like. Okay. <laughs> and so it's, I was like, wow, that I have a problem with that. You know, I could do that. I could do that blindly for so many regions and so many varieties all throughout Europe and many other places in the world. But here I couldn't tell you like, what a wine from Amador County versus El Dorado County or versus Solano County or Monterey. Like that's a much more obscure question, you know? And then you factor in like, well, what's the variety? And, you know, maybe this variety you could pick out, but if it's a different grape, you wouldn't understand that place enough to be sure. able to acknowledge, um, you know, where, where it came from without, you know, if you, if you were, if you were understanding it blind. So it was a, it kind of was a challenge, a personal challenge. And so that's kind of where the idea and the concept of commune regional wines came from was attempting to participate in the exploratory nature of defining what regions taste like, and then setting some parameters, like we're not going to use new wood. We're only going to use native yeasts. We're not going to find, we're not going to filter like so those things where, you know, there's obviously a thousand conversations about terroir and expression and yeah. what counts for that and how you influence it, but trying to be as removed as we can, mm -hmm. you know, and like, you know, we don't, we don't want to have to change chemistry. We don't want to have to do those things. And so we have to try to think like, okay, well, you know, French Columbard, for example, it's grows in a warm climate, but the acid in French Columbard is like a strike of lightning, no matter what you do to it. You could long you could hang it as long as you want. <laughs> it's probably still 3.1 pH. And it's like it's gonna be really acidic. And so kind of leaning into those things where like no one's like, oh my God, French Colombard, it's like such an amazing new hot white variety. It's like, well, it's not really, but <laughs> it's been around for a while. It's been around a while. It was really popular, and that's the reason why it was so popular. It was always, you know, 
planted next to Chenin Blanc or Chardonnay because that would be like the, the, the addition of acidity that you needed. And generally, it crops really high. It's a pretty bland flavor. So you can throw it into a bunch of stuff and not know that it's there. And this is not really that case. I think this particular vineyard um, has a unique personality. And, you know, it just, that was a, the, the perfect example of like, this is not like a variety that I'm like, this is so great and everyone needs to know about it. But like this place expresses white wines. And, and to me, this is indicative of what Sacramento County white wine can and should taste like. Yeah. Because so much of it is, is you know, we, we get all the, all, all the, the mountains are just adjacent to us and all those rocks have, you know, fallen down and washed out. And that's what a lot of the soil is, you know, when you get a little bit further east, at least. Um, so, yeah, it's just kind of continuing that conversation of like trying to learn, trying to make some loose assumptions, gather some guidelines and, and get a feeling, you know, uh, of, of a place and then trying to cerebrally process like what does this place make me feel like and then translate that into when you drink a wine how do you feel that same way yeah how do you identify the the the, the exact set of variables be it a variety and sugar content and whole clusters or not, you know, all these different decisions that you have to make. How can you best make those decisions so that when you open that bottle of wine, you feel that place? And that's a really hard thing to have to figure out. Um, but it's been a, an amazing learning journey thus far. And, and you know, you have to take some risks and you have to make some mistakes along the way, which is the difficult part. Because you still have to pay for all those mistakes, <laughs> but you know it's a part of the challenge, which is which is exciting. How do you find yourself tweaking something like the like the French Colombard as you make it over a couple vintages? A grape that's not bottled all that often on its own, and from an area that it's not bottled <laughs> from. Certainly, um, I think I, I think that it's. I'm always processing, always. Okay. And fortunately and unfortunately, I am like the worst critic of myself. So I'm always analyzing and it's a weird dichotomy to like complete the wines, bottle the wines, put the wines into the market, show them to people and have my own feelings about them because I'm very analytical and, and I and I, I want I know what what I want out of them and then to feel like they're not where I want them, but then people still like the wines a lot. <laughs> and so sure. it's like a weird dichotomy of being like, you know, one one thing, you know, that I won't ever forget that a, a good friend Adam Sake told me is, you know, we were I was asking him a question about something and I and I, you know, maybe made some offhanded remark like, well, you know, like whatever. I don't think it matters that much. And he's like, it does because these are not your wines anymore. These are going to be other people's wines. Hmm. They're going to buy that wine and it's going to be in their fridge or on their table. It's going to belong to them. So 
now, you know, more or less now, now make your decisions about what you want to do, you know, because it does matter because, you know, a winemaker is essentially more of a steward than anything. This isn't, you know, some personal individual, you know, oftentimes it is, you know, the mark of someone's style or, you know, their own interpretation of a place. And we're intentionally trying to like not necessarily do so much of our own interpretation and let the places speak. So, you know, that was, that was a, a, a big light bulb of like, yeah, we, we have to think about who's enjoying these wines. How can we help them understand a place, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the French Colombard, for example, is, you know, in, in, you know, 21, we made, we made that for the first time and, and, and I really enjoyed the result. And in 22, I felt like I really, I really liked it, but I kind of wanted, I wanted a little bit more fruit quality. I wanted just a little extra layer of something. Okay. And so in 22, 22, we took a little bit of Sauvignon Blanc from the, from the top block and, and, and we fermented them separately. And, you know, I thought these could work really well together, you know, and we included about 25% in the 22. And I originally, once when we bottled the wines, I, I didn't really, I was like, I don't know. It's not really what I wanted it to be. Okay. And now over time, it's like, I actually really like it. it it's a really delicious wine. And that's not what I thought was going to happen. And so, you know, now we just tasted the 23 at a barrel. And I don't think that that, was the 22 was like what what I want it to be. So we'll not do that again. And then we'll probably just leave it on its own. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. It just is one of those things of like, you have to try things. And, you know, the, the difficult part in winemaking is it takes a long time to understand if that was a good decision or not a good decision. Of course. It takes, you know, sometimes a year or many to find out if that was a good choice or not. And so it, it's a long road to to get those answers, but you know, I think it takes you know, thoughtfulness and and a lot of attention to detail and and you have to be willing to not be right and then make a change. Yeah. What is it that draws you to a certain vineyard that when you see it or, or taste other wines from it that makes you want to work with it or, or that you think you can, I guess, help kind of tell the story of, of, of that place. Yeah. That's see, now we're getting into, into the, the real good stuff. Um, I get really, I get a little like weird woo woo energetic in this, okay. in this That's particular okay. <laughs> segment, which to me is really important. It's not everyone's flavor. It's not everyone thinks, but, to me, there, I've been for a very long time trying to identify what is this extra thing that appears to exist. You know, for for example, you know, in this particular winery, if Craig Harmeyer and I made wine from the same vineyard, and even if we did it exactly the same, those wines are ultimately going to end up tasting different. There's something yeah. about the tiny microscopic detail of maybe the way I pumped it over versus the way he punched it down or, you know, even, even if the protocol is the same, I don't know. I'm still trying to identify it, but there is something 
some extra layer that's not tangible that appears to show itself in the end product. Yeah. And so for me, trying to find a place that I feel like I want to express first comes from that place of feeling like feeling something. And it it's less, it, you know, ultimately we get to the vineyard portion, but I try to start like from a broad scope of like, you know, I've been wanting to make something in El Dorado County. You know, that was kind of where I, that was my first harvest was in El Dorado County. And so like, it's always been there, but I wasn't sure like, what's the thing that would make sense? What is the variety or the collection of varieties that I feel like is going to express this place the way that I think it should, you know, mm -hmm. like the, the way that I feel about it. And, you know, having seen virtually every single variety that's grown in that place and fermented them and tasted that, you know, I'm quite familiar with it. And I, and I don't always like, I don't, I don't really like a, a lot of the wines. And so that was something that kind of just the timing and, and, and the connection point, you know, I hate to, to go that direction, but the universe kind of had to like get us there. And so, you know, for this year, we tasted the, the, the 23 Vermentino out of barrel and, you know, that kind of came on a connection with Chuck Mansfield several years ago and kind of having been in conversation a little bit here and there, but nothing you know, what was available and the timing, it just wasn't, yeah. it didn't really come together. And so I've, I've you know, I've, I've learned to, tr to be much more open-handed in, in that regard of how you kind of, you know, try to source things or get it into a new vineyard. Like timing is everything, you know, sure. and, and, it, and it's much more about who the people that you're working with rather than like a given place or a vineyard or whatever. Like, you know, if the people that, manage that place or farm that vineyard like suck like why why because that energy is going into your transaction which is going to find its way into the wine one way or another like i'm fully convinced of that and it might be a fine product but like it's always gonna you're always gonna feel something about it at least me i i, I don't really disconnect in that way energetically so the the way that those experiences feel to me is like how I'll always feel about that given wine or something. Yeah. You know? So it's like letting letting kind of life take you on that journey and and having in your mind where you want it to go and then letting the process kind of happen naturally has proven to be a much better, a much better way to, to go about it. And so, you know, after I I started thinking about it and I was like, I think like if it's El Dorado County, I feel like Vermentino like might be, mm. that might be, I think the starting point to me because there's elevation, the soil type, like it all kind of seems to fit. And I've had several examples and I really liked some of them and not liked some others. And so, you know, the timing was there and, you know, Chuck Mansfield's an amazing guy and they had a couple rows that they hadn't really sold to anyone really before that were recently grafted. And I said, let's try it. And thus far I am completely impressed and stoked and the wine tastes delicious. So, you know, I think it's just sort of those, you know, trying to think about those things and then let, let, let life take me there. Okay.
and then try to identify when it doesn't seem right. You know, sometimes you have to make, you gotta, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta do it, it and then yeah. learn the hard way. Um, but I, I think trying, trying to let life take me to those places. Okay. And then once, once we get there and, and boots are on the ground, I always try to take my wife with me there because she's uh, much more connected in that regard. And, and she has a much greater barometer for this feels good and this doesn't feel good. Okay. And so if it feels good, then we'll probably continue. We'll at least try it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. If you want to jump into 22 Valdegate, we can. Yeah, sure. Nothing like Beaujolais. Tastes more like our own wine to me. It does, yeah. 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 I think uh, since you just poured some, I'd like to ask you about working with Valdegate. Yeah, Valdegate Valdegi is, is such an interesting variety. And a little bit of it, it feels a little bit obligatory if we're trying to express Solano County and Green Valley is a big part of that. It kind of feels like we need to explore that. And, um, you know, it's got a special place because of its history there in, in Green Valley and kind of, you know, being around, um, you know, my, my childhood stomping grounds and not yeah. knowing what, what that was <laughs> or even never having heard of it. But, you know, the lineage and the history of, of the variety coming to California and being misidentified as, as Gamay Noir right. and, and, you know, how it was perceived for so many years and, um, Again, that's that link of history where we're always trying to respect history when when we can. And and old vines are, are always, you know, I'm I'm not like a, you know, one of those like only old vines make a good wine. I don't think that at all. I think young vines make really delicious wine as well. But if there are old vines in the ground, like probably you should go there first. Sure. Especially in cases like this where there's not irrigation and like the vines are established. They just manage themselves more or less. So there's, it's very little input on what's going on, you know, and, and the farming is, is less impactful. Everything is a little bit easier. So if you can capitalize and express from old vines, I think that's always better. And so, you know, this, Vineyard was planted in, in the early 1960s, um, you know, actually co-planted in a really interesting block of Valdegui, Carignan, and Cabernet Sauvignon. Oh, so interesting. So an interesting makeup okay. that I've not ever seen those three co-planted before. Separate blocks before. or, no, they're or all, all interplanted? They're all, they're all mixed. Okay. And so, you know, that's a challenge of, you know, trying to show <laughs> the picking crew what the leaves look like so yeah. that they don't pick the Cabernet, um, which is how, how we did it. We did not put Cabernet in, in this, in this, um, this wine, which to me was like, sounds really interesting. And I do want to know what that tastes like, but I don't think that is the expression that is, is suitable here. That's not that, like, that seems like a one-off that those three are together and yeah. you would not really find that. That's not a common combination. You know what I mean? Yeah, was that for? Do you know if it was for a, a specific producer or? I have no idea. Just, it's a random block in a residential neighborhood. Yeah. It's like less than two acres. It just was like, not. I'd never seen it before, and yeah. I, you know, I didn't even know that vineyard was there until I, you know, had driven by on a happenstance. So, 
it just, um, it didn't make that much sense, you know, at least like to gamble on it first try. I was not comfortable with doing that, you know, yeah, understandable. Green Valley is a pretty cold place. So like, you know, I didn't want to risk like some super pyrazinic green Cabernet coming in and, you know, really modifying the way that the wine was going to present itself. And then you kind of get into a little bit of a perception issue where I, I really want, my dream is to not list varieties on any of the wines. Okay. Because I want to express place. That probably will prove to be impossible from 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 you know a sales standpoint. People really like to know what it is that they're drinking. Yeah. So that would kind of make that further complicated by including some Cabernet in the mix. So we decided to opt out of the Cabernet. Um, there is a little bit of Carignan in there, though. Um, undisclosed amount. <laughs> we don't know because we just took it all and, and, and fermented it together. So. Um, but it's a really interesting variety, you know. I, I think that it's often understood or branded as, um, you know, fresh and lively and quaffable, and and I think it's much more serious um, at its core. You know, it's it's much more tannic than Gamay Noir generally is, um, and it has a more kind of like really like rustic feel to it, and and I like that. It makes me it makes me feel like old California, you know, it makes me feel like, yeah. you know, those random old bottles of Hardy Burgundy or, you know, whatever, like it, it makes me feel like that rustic, like genuinely pure California feeling yeah. that I, I, I don't find in other varieties, you know, cause they all kind of all like take you to another place a little bit, you know, like yeah. the best Chardonnay and Pinot Noir or Syrah or whatever, like they're all kind of like, you know, they were they're reminding me of what the benchmarks of France taste like. And and Baudelaire is kind of uniquely Californian in a way. You know, it's it's kind of I think deserves a, a similar lens as Zinfandel. It's kind of uniquely ours. Right. And, and and there's something really fun and special about the grape. And, you know, it was one of Emily and I's earliest um long long uh nights of conversation was was a bottle of brock balbagie from from solano county and so it was always like ah we should probably make you know in honor of us we should probably make some someday and so yeah we got the chance to do it and we're pretty happy about it and we'll definitely continue i, I think it's a really fun variety and and it definitely is in my opinion the perfect expression of Solano County. Yeah, I love when it's not covered up with any oak. Really, sometimes I feel like it's a it's a grape that any new oak really kind of overpower. You lose the I would agree. You, you lose a lot of the identity. Yeah, the oak is uh, not something is not a flavor that I particularly enjoy. Um, in most cases. Um. I've been proven wrong for sure. Um, Craig's first uh, vintage with his big Russo um, fooder in there, uh, he put Shannon Blanc in. And I remember tasting that, you know, after the wine had finished and just 
you know, it, you, 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 you feel sometimes like after so many years, you kind of have like your opinion and you're like, well, I know that I definitely don't like new oak and like new oak and like white wine, especially <laughs> is like, doesn't taste great. And then you taste something like that and you're like, yeah, but like Chenin Blanc with like some <laughs> reduction and a little bit of new oak is unbelievably delicious. <laughs> and so, you know, that's another one of those eye opening. You're like, God damn it. Like, don't make any claims, you know, but generally speaking, I don't really, pr I, I want to taste the fruit and I want to taste the place. And oftentimes throwing in new oak flavors kind of muddies those waters a bit. Um, and it's also pretty expensive. Um, yeah. So we definitely don't <laughs> buy any new barrels. Um, and that's, that's a pretty, I feel like a pretty good, I feel confident we probably will not do that. Um, yeah. Uh, in, include any any new barrels as long as we can help it I, I probably i probably will not do that i think it's just a better way to be able to perceive place without the inclusion of new barrels is the carignan you're making is that from the same vineyard in solano or is that no so this is this particular one um we've kind of been a little bit bumping bopping around a little bit with in the carignan world so in 2020 we we, we produced some some old vine from parenti we did um, get that fruit back this year. Okay. Um, so we do have that in, in barrel now, which theoretically will probably get blended with the Valdegui is kind of the idea. And um, and then we started last year in Amador County um, with, oh, with, with some very, very old vines from 1916, um, which is a very, very special expression, um, which we should probably taste the 22 here since it's open. Um, so yeah, you know, Carignan is, is, is a really interesting variety in, especially in terms of, of old vine expressions, you know, it's, I think one of those varieties that gets more special, the older that the vines yeah. get. And, you know, again, another similar situation of the vines are old, they're in the ground, they don't put water on them. Um, you know, maintenance is very low. And so if you can start there, I think that's always the best place to start. And having the chance to produce from vines that are older than my grandfather is, you know, it's just, it, again, the history of being able to do something today that was the product of, you know, I just think all, all every time I drink this wine, I'm like, what was happening in 1916 on Ridge Road, yeah. you know, in Amador County? Like, who planted these grapes? Like, that's crazy to me. And they're still there, you know? And they've, they've been in the hands of the Merle family since 1985, I think, they bought the property. And it's just, you know, it, it, it's such a special thing. And, and, Carignan is, you know, a bit of a bit of a chameleon in, in a lot of different ways where it's naturally a pretty acidic variety. And so for me, I don't want to correct chemistry. If we're working in warmer climates, let's lean into varieties that are going to, you know, naturally present themselves without the need for correction. So yeah. Carignan is one of those is one of those grapes. And I love it because it, it it can take on so many different styles as, as an end product depending on what you do with it and you know in 21 we 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 destemmed 
everything and 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 added in a very small portion of of the stems back in um and the wine is delicious it's so lifted and red fruited and you know it, it has this like almost dusty kind of rose laden earthy quality that that sometimes almost reminds me of like roasted beets mm. which to me in my logic feels like oh well maybe that's like kind of that iron rich dense like aiken clay loam soil uh, maybe that's what that is and that makes me feel really happy that you know the wine kind of feels like it's from Amador County you know it's not Zinfandel but to me like these vines have been there a very long time and Zinfandel and Carignan very often are planted around each other there's yeah. Zinfandel directly next to this block and so you know I think Carignan is very close to my heart and I hope to make Carignan forever because I love it. Yeah. yeah that's mm. nice. I mean, this wine drinks almost like Grenache or like, you know, like maybe in some worlds, Pinot Noir. It's, you know, really, really interesting. Yeah, that roasted beet, that's kind of a flavor I kind of associate with, with Pinot. Yeah, the, and uh, this kind of ha has a little bit of that quality, yeah. Made some Syrah this year also, right? This year, um, we did not. Oh, you did? Okay. In, 20, in 22, we, we, we did, and, and this year we did not make any Syrah. I made Syrah in 2021 um, from a small vineyard in, in Green Valley, and, and really... Syrah is the one that's like so important to me that I feel like I have to stop making it because okay. I have not cracked the code on it yet. And so I've tried three different times after that <laughs> and none of them are what, what, I, what, what I want to feel out of Syrah. Okay. And so I decided like I'm going to just give it a rest for I'm a minute. Give it a rest and I'm going to let I'm going to stop trying. I'm going to let the universe take me there when I'm ready to go there. Okay. Um and so I think, you know, I think over eagerness often sets you in into a place where you're trying to accomplish something and you will you're maybe more inclined to um, compromise because your priority is to accomplish the thing. So if you can't find the perfect set of, of requirements, you might give a little on one or two things just so you can accomplish it. And I don't want to do that anymore. So yeah. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the right place uh, to show up. Good. And we may have found it. <laughs> oh, but even better. We did not have, we did not have, uh, we, we need to, we hit our capacity, uh, this year for sure. So, uh, maybe next year, maybe, maybe next year we, yeah. we might explore that again. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, we, well, we talked about the Valier, but, uh, you, you do have some actual gamay 
There's also some gamay <laughs> in the cellar. Yes, there is some true gamay noir um, in the cellar uh, at the moment. Um, and again, another, you know, life brought us to that. And, and so gamay and Syrah are kind of the two red varieties that, that more or less make my world go around. Uh, that's what I, you, I like to buy those wines and I put those wines in my cellar and I love them. I, those, you know, Beaujolais and, and, and Syrah from the Northern Rhone are, are two things I love more than, than pretty much any other wine. And Gamay is pretty tricky in California. Yeah. There's not really much of it and it's difficult to get and it never really, it's never made me feel that way that Beaujolais does. And, you know, that's not just a factor of, you know, carbonic maceration. And, you know, that to me is not the conversation. It's, it's, it's much more about place. And I, I, I felt for a long time that like Gamay is just hasn't found its area. It's like wherever it's been put, that's not the place for it. Um, and maybe two, two years ago or so, I was at a friend's house, Eben Drucker, who's really close with Ian Brand, and he had pulled a bottle of Gamay Noir out that had just been released and was like, Ian's making Gamay. And I was like, I love Ian's wines. They're some of my favorite in California. And I was like, I'm this is going to be delicious for sure. Let's try the wine. And we, he opened it and we drank it. And I was like, this is the only gamay I've ever had from California that makes me feel like Beaujolais makes me feel. Mm. And of course I asked, where is he getting that fruit? And of course he told me Scott Caraccioli. Um, and I immediately text Scott and was like, what's up with the gamay, dude? <laughs> and uh, and so, yeah, he was like, we grafted a couple acres, you know, where it's kind of an experiment, but thus far we like it. So I'll put you on the waiting list because a lot of other people like it too. And so I said, put me on the waiting list whenever it's available, we, we, will, we, will, we will take it. And so this year, you know, 11th hour, he was like, I'm going to have some extra. And I said, you tell me when. And I will be there. So I got in an old Verna. Our, she's our 71 C20. And I drove my ass <laughs> four hours to <laughs> Gonzales um, and stayed in a Motel 6 and picked up a couple boxes of Gamay Noir. And, um, you know, the fruit's perfect. The vineyard's incredible. It's, you know, he's got two clones at the moment. And they're, you know, at the highest elevation on his vineyard and it's all granite soils, mm. you know, rocky, rocky, super granite. And, you know, I've now had, I've had one other example off that site from Samuel Lewis Smith that completely floored me. And I think that hopefully if we can, if, if we as producers can develop enough economic stability, I think that, that we'll see a lot more Gamay Noir planted in Santa Lucia Highlands. I think that there's something really, really there. So I'm very excited about what we have in barrel right now. And, you know, Megan Zobeck got some this year as well. And she's obviously doing amazing things with Gamay as well. So I think, you know, maybe there's a Gamay revolution yeah. going on at the moment. So very, very exciting for sure. 
Yeah, I think it's great to have find some new locations where it can be because there really just isn't much of it in California. There's not much. Yeah. And, you know, Agame, I think, is a variety that needs a particular set of circumstances, like really any variety. You know, there are some that are a little bit more pliable. Carignan, you can kind of throw in a lot of different places and get a result. But, you know, like Pinot Noir, Gamay Noir is in that similar realm where like the right set of circumstances, I think, is 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 the best case scenario. And in California, we don't have a similar set of microclimate and soil type like you'd you'd find in in, in Beaujolais. So Santa Lucia perhaps is one of the closer the closer places. Um, and so time will tell, but it's pretty exciting to me. Yeah. Yeah. And so, it, you know, that is like, it feels like that's very ground floor, like something's kind of being discovered at the moment. And, you know, that's incredibly exciting to, to get to participate in and, you know, to, to see the, the very short list of people that are producing that fruit and, and be on that list is, is pretty neat. So Yeah, and it sounded like you you kind of ended up getting the fruit a couple of years before you originally yeah, again, thought even, right? Life, life took us there. I was saving up. Yeah. <laughs> I was saving up money for 2025. And, um, you know, yeah, that was on a whim, you know, which again is, you know, just sometimes is how it goes is sometimes there's fruit and sometimes there's not fruit, you know, depending on, 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 on the vintage. So there was extra fruit and... I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure Scott asked Evan who he should give fruit to and Evan told him that he should give it to me. So <laughs> thanks Evan. It's good to have and friends. Scott yeah. <laughs> but again, you know, that's that's oftentimes is how how these things happen. And so having, you know, first who is it that you're working with is really important. Yeah. So and that one proved to be, to work in our favor. So there any grapes or areas that you haven't been able to explore that you are kind of yeah. like itching for? Lots. And and you don't have to say either if you want to no, keep I them. Mean, a, there's a there's lo- there's okay. loads. I mean, to me, like you know, it's it's a playground. There's there's so much to explore, and that's a part of what I love is that it, it kind of never it never ends, you know. And you know, my 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 family is from Oregon, and I really would love to find a way to explore Oregon terroir at okay. some point. There's a lot of places and, you know, one of the other nuts I've been trying to crack is Cabernet Franc and I might have to go to Oregon for that one. Mm. And, you know, I'm not sure yet. I'm still exploring and tasting and trying to evaluate where that might make sense. And at the moment, San Benito is kind of my target. I think that, okay. that makes good sense. But there's there's some pretty damn delicious Cabernet Franc coming out of Oregon at the moment. Um, but in that same track, you know, I've been driving between Northern California and Oregon my entire life. And every time I get to Shasta, I'm like, I think there's you could grow some really delicious grapes here. Yeah, and that is a very undiscovered um, uh, region. So 
I think that could be really fun. Um, you know, I, I, I'd really like to be able to produce some Chardonnay um, at some point, but that one's going to be, that's going to be a while, I think, on that one. Because yeah. that, that I, I know very precisely what that I, I want out of that and, and where I want that to come from that makes sense to me and how to do it. And, and we're not, we're not there yet. So in, in time, but that's, that's a big one for sure. And then cracking Syrah is, is, is going to be, that's close, I think. But I think this year we were able to kind of explore some new things that were on, on, on my list for a while and you know Vermentino being one of those in, in El Dorado County and Gamay in, in Monterey, yeah. Monterey County. Those were those were two two targets that that I think came around that I think will will stick. I think those have really good really good legs um, to make a lot of sense. So yeah, I mean beyond that, I really really love Santa Barbara County. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot of people making really, really good wines out of Santa Barbara County, so I'm not sure we need to add add to that. Okay. Um, I'm ha- at the moment I'm happy enough to just drink those bottles and and not have to drive that far. Um, so at the moment, uh, I think Sonoma County is probably the top target. Okay. Which probably will be Chardonnay. Yeah. Okay. So that might be. A ways, a ways out. Um, I've always, I've always kind of considered Mendocino as well, but I'm un, I'm uncertain on where to start with that. It's there's so much history, but also so much, you know, modernity and so many different expressions, so many great ones, like. I, I'm I'm not sure what makes sense for Mendocino County yeah. at, at and from my perspective I, I I don't know yet you know there's great old vine Carignan and Valdigui and also great Chardonnay and yeah. great Syrah and you know there's just so many you know it's there's a lot of great wines and so I'm not sure how to express that place yet but yeah I think Sonoma County is the closest to our heart from a place of wanting to express. Uh, but most of the fruit and smell is pretty expensive. So yeah, I'll <laughs> probably be a ways out on that one. How did you find yourself working here with Craig and at the, I mean, kind of the Harmeyer, but historically the Harbor Winery? Yeah, well, we, um, well it was 2020 and we decided to start making wine. And again, <laughs> doing first and and sorting out later is is the general <laughs> trend. So, you know, I decided to make some wine and, you know, secured some sources and kind of got the plan together and 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 had not um, any place to make the wines. <laughs> so we were we were creeping up on harvest pretty quickly and. Um. Adam Saki was was scheduled here um, okay. in 2020. You know, he had he had 
produced, um, you know, a, a single barrel the year prior, which was kind of his his precursor, and that was done at Turley, and then he had left Turley, and and you know was just kind of kind of focused on 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 uh, launching Perch. Um, and so I knew he was going to be here, and then I was like, well, that's probably way too many cooks in this tiny kitchen. Um, but I, I, I just, it kind of came down to lamenting to Craig and he's like, I think I probably mentioned it a few too many times. And he's <laughs> like, you can do it here if you want. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, that sounds good. <laughs> and so, yeah, 2020 was, um, yeah, that, that was, that was a fun, a fun harvest. You know, it was obviously nice. ripe with COVID situation and yeah. It was hot as all hell and, you know, we were, the doors were open and then we, you know, do, do we wear masks? We like what, you know, it was just was like a really uncomfortable in, in a lot of ways, but sure. also was like such a blast at the same time. Cause you know, it was, you know, all three of us were all in here producing and it was, you know, just a fun collective kind of environment of Adam and I trying to figure shit out and, you know. It was, it was, it was a good, it was a good time for sure. And so, yeah, you know, it's less than 10 minutes from my house and kind of one of the only wineries in Sacramento, <laughs> but also such a, an amazing historical place to, to be able yeah, to, sure. to produce. And, you know, it's, there's, there's so much history here and, you know, it, it, it has its own signature for sure. Yeah. So it's kind of nice to be able to, you know, start producing wine and have your wines kind of taste like they've been around a while, <laughs> which is kind of cool. So. Yeah, I think I, I remember Craig saying, like, fermentations take off, mallow <laughs> takes uh, mallow's off. Mallow's like, very quickly. It, it, all, it all moves quick yes. here. Uh, a little bit slower this year, thankfully, much much, much colder. But, yeah, of, oftentimes that, that was certainly a, a, a lesson uh, to be learned uh, in the first few years that mallow's probably happening in conjunction uh, okay. with alcoholic, um, mm -hmm. if not before. Okay. And, um, yeah, that's, that's a great situation to get, you know, mouse taint and all yeah. sorts of things. And so it's, it's always, you gotta be pretty alert, um, in, in the cellar and, you know, it, 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 it makes work relatively straightforward because it's, it's more about things that you, that you can't do. It's, you kind of just have to like, you know, there's not a bunch of big tanks. It's like red ferments are all in tea bins because that that's that's what we have available mm -hmm. and so you know it kind of helps focus your protocol decisions and um you know it's a very you know alex and craig have a very relaxed attitude about things which is you know for someone new i think is a really great uh perspective to not feel so rigid about things you know and mm -hmm. generally craig's response is eh, it'll be fine and and that's that's proven to to be pretty true. So you know, someone super concerned about what you know, like, but wait, do wait, and then is this going to happen? And what do I? And how do I? You know, it's kind of nice to have someone who's like, just relax. Yeah, <laughs> give it time. Be okay, <laughs> it's simple. Just let it be simple. You know. And so, yeah, it's it's been you know, yeah. Now our fourth harvest uh, this year. Yeah, in the building. So. I think we're starting to figure it out. <laughs> nice. I know you had a new release recently. But yeah, I we just released all the 22s um, 
what is it now? January. Yeah. In, in November, I think we did. So just before the end of fall. So it technically was still a fall release. <laughs> um, but so go the rigors of, you know, a family and a full-time job and trying to not kill yourself on weekends and at night. Yeah. <laughs> After the kids go to sleep. Um, so yeah, we just released, um, the wines and, you know, obviously the greatest way is just on the website directly. Um, communeregionalwines.com. That's certainly the most advantageous for a small producer, but, uh, but yeah, you can also find, find the wines in, in some select, uh, retail restaurants, um, throughout Northern California, um, I wouldn't have a, an, a, a precise list off the top yeah. of my head. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, um, Paul Marcus in, in the East Bay has, has some of the wines um, here in Sacramento, Taylor's Market stocks them. Um, and then, you know, Rochambeau is a great supporter as well from like a more wine bar situation. So they're kind of, you know, in and around and we don't make a lot of wine. You know, most things are one barrel cuvees yeah. so um there's certainly not to be spread around all over the place but um but yeah just directly on the website is definitely the best the best way to do it and we can you know we're, we're able to ship through third party to you know pretty much anywhere in the country um so so yeah they're they're available there not for long carignan's pretty much sold out already so get them while you can Thanks for listening to our episode today with Tyler and Commune Regional Wines. These are amazingly food-friendly wines made from unique sources and small quantities, and you should really try them. You can find the wines at communeregionalwines.com and follow what they're up to at Commune Regional Wines on Instagram. You can follow the podcast on wherever you're listening and the Instagram at IndieWinePodcast. Feel free to email IndieWinePodcast at gmail.com with comments, questions, or feedback. If you can tell your wine friends about the podcast too and help spread the word, I'd really appreciate it. Rating or subscribing helps too. There's also a Patreon if you would like to support the podcast monetarily to hopefully allow for more episodes, more travel, and to help defray other costs. Link is in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode. Have a good one.